Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living, the Resources of the Church, with a message titled, Maintain the Unity. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Let's begin today with a study of our text. It's Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you were to move to a foreign country, you might have to learn a new language, but you'd also find that the customs and traditions of that country vary vastly from your own. I remember some years ago, a friend of mine got into some difficulty in a foreign country because he didn't know that the phrase, I'll give that some thought, essentially meant yes in that country. So when he was asked if he would significantly contribute money to a building project, it was requiring a large donation, he said he'd have to think about that. You know, in our culture, depending on how that gets said, that can be tantamount to saying no. But in that culture, that was understood as a definite yes. He had to do some wrangling to get himself out of that awkward situation. That's the point. Every country has its customs and ways of communicating little signals that communicate meaning. And when someone moves to another culture, it's important to begin to understand how to live and what is expected of you. In the book of Ephesians, Paul has been making the case that when Christ redeemed a people to himself, he created a new race of people, that is the church of Jesus Christ. This new people, as you're going to remember, is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and so the old walls of hostility have been broken down. In our study of this book, we now come to chapter 4, and as we will see, the book moves from being highly theological, presenting the great truths of our salvation, to now becoming intensely practical. And as this chapter begins, it might be helpful to think about it like moving to a foreign country. Once we were dead in sins, but now we're alive in Christ. And with our new life, we've been made a part of the people of God, the church. And since the church is being compared to a new nation, we're going to have to learn the customs and the practices of that new nation. We're going to have to learn how to live. And Paul begins this practical section by telling us that we must walk worthy of our calling. And that word worthy, well, that's an important word. One Greek lexicon says it means being fitting or fitting in. It means to act in accordance to what is expected. So let's get back to the image of moving to a foreign land. What's expected when you greet someone in the street in that country? And when you visit someone in their home? And when someone offers you a gift? Are you supposed to offer one back? There are literally hundreds of customs that might be confusing. So then when you come to the new nation of the people of God, how do you walk worthy of your calling? And what follows in this section is first, Paul will give four character traits that are required of all believers. And then second, he urges believers to seek unity. And then lastly, he tells us of a reality that we must all appreciate, and that reality consists of a sevenfold confession of our unity. Now, before we launch right in, look again at verse 1. 
I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. You might wonder why at this juncture, when we're about to talk about the necessity of Christian unity, why does Paul mention his imprisonment? Well, I think Paul says this because he wants to impress upon his readers just how important these matters are. Paul's in prison because his activities of sharing the gospel and building the church created a backlash. So we think of his imprisonment as the consequence that came to him because of his activities. Paul's not writing as an armchair theologian. He's a warrior who's gone to prison. And furthermore, by the time we get to chapter 6, he will describe the great spiritual warfare that he and we are now fighting. What he's about to share is not a suggestion. He's strongly urging all believers to live in such a way that the unity of the church is maintained. So again, Paul wants us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. You know, all of us know what happens when the opposite is seen. Men and women who, in their walk, exemplify, well, selfishness or are interested only in promoting their own gain. Men and women whose lives make a mockery of the Christian faith. Quite frankly, we've had so much of that. It's caused so much damage to the church and the witness of Christ to the world. We need to hear our Savior urging us to take this matter of Christian character very seriously. So good. Let's look then at the four character traits that lead to unity. First, there is humility. See, I've come to understand that humility was actually despised in the ancient world. The Romans thought of it as a quality which was desired in a slave, but not in a free man. It spoke of servility, of weakness and powerlessness, and of someone who's in a lower class of people. But it's very different in the Bible. The First Testament uses the word over 250 times. And in Jesus, the word's a virtue. Paul says of Jesus that he humbled himself even to the point of death. Or you might think of Jesus' own words in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he describes himself saying, I am gentle or I am humble. Acts twenty nineteen, Paul says that he served the Lord in humility. 1 Peter 3, 8, Peter commands believers to be humble. So what is this quality that was so hated among the Greeks and the Romans and yet so prized by Jesus, by Paul, and by Peter? One definition of this term is that it is a condition of lowliness or affliction in which one experiences the loss of power and of prestige. Well, if you think of that, you might think of John 13 where Jesus takes the form of a servant, he picks up a towel and a wash basin, and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And in the ancient world, that's the role that you would expect of a servant of the lowest rank possible. And Jesus thinks nothing of it, that he would perform that function. See, humility means that we're willing to serve each other regardless of how that makes us look to the others. Humility properly understood is not to think less of ourselves. It's not getting an inferiority complex and then acting on it. But humility is also not false humility when someone acts like a servant in order to attract attention to themselves. Look, you can be humble and have a very positive self-esteem. So then what is humility? Humility, if we understand it right, is to forget about ourselves, to be overwhelmed with care for the other. Humility is to be ready to serve without regard to how it makes us appear. We serve others regardless of our station because we love them. 
In the humble moment, we forget about ourselves and we remember about the other. And then the next virtue, which Paul couples with humility, is gentleness. Humility and gentleness, he says. Probably the best way to think about gentleness is to contrast it with the opposite. So you think about the person who is harsh in dealings with the other. The gentle person, on the other hand, doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't shout at people. He's gracious. He's tactful. He's courteous, polite. He's civil. Serving one another without regard to how it makes you look in a manner that's gracious and gentle and kind. See, those are values, cultural expectations that are among the people of God. And then Paul adds the word patience. You want to know if you're patient? You know, you're patient if you're able to put up with a great deal from others without losing your temper. The patient person has a sense of emotional calm even when things go horribly wrong. And the fourth character trait is what God expects in the people of God, that they love one another. We love someone when what we do serves their well-being or looks out for them or seeks their long-term good. To bear with someone in love means we're able to put up with them because we have their interests in mind. See, I want to add here that these characteristics are not natural to us. Galatians 5 calls these characteristics the fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Have you noticed that all of this builds unity? Have you also noticed that this is not an organizational chart as to how to have a more unified church? This is life change wrought by the Holy Spirit. Carnal people tear the church apart. Spirit-filled people walking in the Spirit walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now, Paul moves from these four characteristics to define the culture of Jesus. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, be zealous because it's urgent. Do everything you can. Notice Paul calls this the unity of the Spirit, meaning that it's the Holy Spirit that creates our unity. Did you notice? We don't create the unity. The Holy Spirit does. He brought it into being. Our job is to maintain it. Notice it's done in the bond of peace. A bond is something that ties something together. And so peace is that which ties us together through the work of the Spirit of God. We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to meet you face-to-face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt are excited to invite you to our 2021 special virtual event called The Gathering, coming on Sunday, September 19th. Enjoy an exclusive message from Dr. John Newfeld hosted by Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and musical guests that will enrich our time together in worship. Last September, people from right across Canada attended online in their offices, homes, on their computers, or even their phones. It was so encouraging celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching biblical truths to a new generation. More information is on the way, so keep an eye out at backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry email update while you're there, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Paul has made the case that the natural condition of the local church is unity and love, 
It's people looking out for each other, people serving each other, people not concerned for their position, rather people concerned for one another. It's the Holy Spirit that has created these conditions. We're to make sure that we do not break what the Holy Spirit has created. There's something else. The unity of the church is based on another unity. See, in what follows, that is, verses 4 to 6, Paul presents us with a sevenfold confession or seven things that are true or seven things that are central to the faith. You know, some scholars have argued that what we have in these three verses is an ancient Christian confession. That is, as a part of their training in the faith, Christians in the early church would have memorized this sevenfold confession as a part of their statement of faith. Well, we have no idea whether that's true or not, but in either case, one thing remains certain. These seven things that can be described as unique or only or one, these things are the hallmark of the Christian faith. So let's look at them one at a time. First, there is but one body. Paul, of course, is referring to the church. We do know that there are times when referring to the church, the church is spoken of as the local church. For example, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, did you notice that the passage doesn't say the church of Asia, rather the churches of Asia? There are many churches in Asia. And one of those churches happens to be the house church in the house of Aquila and Prisca. And now, that use of the word church is often how we use it today. So when we ask someone, where do you go to church? We're saying, which one of the many churches are you a part of? However, there are times, and we find it here in Ephesians 4.4, where it's entirely correct to say, no, no, there aren't many churches, but there is but one church. And when we say that, we're not contradicting ourselves. All local churches are part of the one universal church. If Christ has created a new race of humanity, and that race is the church, then we have to expect that there is one church in a global world. No matter where you go in the world, there is a fundamental unity or a global unity or a comprehensive worldwide oneness of the true church. Second, there's one spirit. You'll notice that Paul places the spirit right next to the church. There is one spirit, he says, and some have suggested that just like the human body that has a spirit that animates it, so the church has one Holy Spirit that gives it life. Well, it fits very well with, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where we read, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. That is to say, it is the unique role of the Holy Spirit that he who first enlivens our hearts so that individually we pay attention to the gospel. Now what he has done is melted us together into the church. Well, that's the miracle of what the Holy Spirit does. But the main point here is still this. There is but one Holy Spirit. There are not multiple beings who we will call the Holy Spirit. That is, there's one Holy Spirit who drew Rudy to Christ and another Holy Spirit who drew Marianne to Christ. However, we came to Christ, and no matter under what circumstances we came to Christ, and however we came to share in the fellowship of the local church, it was the very same Holy Spirit who did that work in the millions of people who make up the people of God. Then the third unity which Paul speaks is put in the phrase, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, Paul's still speaking about the work of the Spirit who called us. But now he wants our attention to be given to the hope that is a part of every single believer's life. 
It's not as if the believers in sub-Saharan Africa have a different hope than the believer who lives in Argentina. Indeed, although the culture of those two believers is so very different, and yet, once we get to know each one of them, you'll find out that they both have the very same hope. The hope of the believer is not that things are going to get better, or that our kids are going to have a better life than we had, or that we might hit the jackpot and become rich and quit our jobs and travel the world. The hope of every single believer has also been called the blessed hope. Listen to Paul's words in Titus 2, 11 to 13. He wrote, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, now watch this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes. Why do we renounce worldly pleasures? Because our hope is not in this world. We long for the day when Jesus appears in glory, and we, having been washed of our sins by the blood of Christ, reconciled with God, hear the words of our Savior say, enter into the joy prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. Don't you see, you can talk to a believer in Iceland or China or Canada, Philippines, and they'll all have the same hope planted into their souls. That's remarkable. Fourth, we have but one Lord. In the New Testament, Lord almost always refers to Jesus. I recently had a conversation about whether Jesus was the only way to God. I said, here's the problem with the question. We live in a society where intuitively, when someone makes that kind of an exclusive statement, we automatically think must be wrong. But the human problem is that we're in sin, that we face a righteous God who demands an accounting for a rebellion against infinite holiness. Who's going to save us from our sins If there's another Savior, who would that be? Indeed, no other religion on earth even puts forth a Savior who can save us from our sins. The glory of the church is that we have but one Savior, one Lord, Jesus. Fifth, there's only one faith. Now here the word faith is not used as a verb, but as a noun. See, when used as a verb, faith refers to our confident trust in Jesus. But when used as a noun, Faith refers to the doctrinal truths that Christians confess together. So, for instance, look at the list that's before us in our text. We've been told there's but one Spirit, then one Lord, and then last of all, there's a reference to God the Father. Well, here we have the beginnings of the confessions of a triune God. That is our God. We don't have various views on who God is. The Bible, which forms the basis of our confessions, testifies that there is but one God, and yet this one God eternally exists in three distinct persons, and that is our one faith. Our faith includes the nature of Jesus, that in his incarnation, the infinitely glorious Son took upon himself human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He sits at the Father's right hand, making intercession for us. And he's also waiting for the time when he will return to bring his people home. That's but a sampling of our true faith. We don't have a Baptist faith or a Mennonite faith or a Lutheran faith or a Presbyterian faith. We have but one faith that is forever fixed. Six, we have but one baptism. Yeah, it's true. Christians have disagreed regarding baptism. It's not my place here to articulate those differences. 
But since Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 is about the unity of the church, not about the divisions of the church, we've got to assume that the one true baptism is the baptism which is the initiatory rite, which symbolizes that all baptized confessing believers belong to one another. And seventh, the last, is that there is but one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And to refer to the Father as over all and through all and in all, it's to say he's everywhere present. There's no place where God is absent. You know, David could even say, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You know, I love to tell a story of a man who once sent me a note. It had a harsh tone to it. I had some years ago made the decision that I'd no longer be preaching with a tie, and this person was quite upset. But I had concluded that the reason men lived shorter lives than women is that we're slowly choking ourselves to death and shutting off our air supply through those cursed ties. Well, I hope you know I was joking. I I just made the decision because I thought it was appropriate dress. But he told me that I was to dress up better for God. And I said to him, if God is everywhere present, then I am in the direct presence of God when I'm brushing my teeth in the morning and when I fall asleep in my bed at night. I don't dress for God. I, I dress in a way that's appropriate to God's people. Well, that being said, if God is everywhere present, and he is but the one true God. How much more so then when we celebrate his presence as the church? You see, we are a body brought together in unity. Are you as a Christian guarding the unity of the church? Are you the cause of friction between brothers and sisters? If you're the cause of friction, if you're unkind, take the time and repent and instead be eager, my dear brothers and sisters, to guard your activity so that you're contributing to the unity of God's people. Thanks so much, John. Now, let me ask you this. How can the Christian declare Christian unity to the observer that seemingly witnesses so much divide? Well, I mean, some of the divide is real divide, and some, I think, is a peripheral divide. Um, You know, I I love to say that when it comes to to the the central issues of the faith, that's where you can tell where all true believers are. We know that, you know, people do disagree on some things, but uh, at the same time, we need to recognize that Christ calls a unity for the church and that unity is demanded of us. It's not a unity based on ignoring central doctrines, but on celebrating them. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. So grateful to all those who have so generously participated in our fiscal year-end campaign. As you know, our goal by June 30th is still to raise $325,000 to sustain and develop Bible teaching and engagement programming across Canada and beyond. To do this, we utilize every effective medium at our disposal to make Bible teaching you can trust available online, on air, podcast, audio mail, and mobile apps offering audio, video, and print resources. As you may have heard, it's Dr. Newfeld's dream and the ministry at large to make the gospel known so that every Canadian would hear and need to make a choice as what to do with Jesus. So by June 30th, 
Could we ask that you consider making a gift to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.